Hello, and welcome back to Wheat from the Chat. My name's Dave Westwood, and I'm actually flying solo this evening. Um, Mike has abandoned me and taken his bicycle with him to ride around northern France. So hopefully he will be back with me in uh, four weeks' time. So coming up for you tonight, uh, we did a pre-record last week uh, with someone that we've wanted to have on the show for a while and that um, just happened to be that she's an incredibly busy person. Um, and so diaries just hadn't lined up. Um, and we knew we were coming in this week, and so we thought that it would be a great chance for us to do our first pre-record. So shortly you will be hearing Mike and I in conversation with Robin, um, and Robin well, in the pre in the interview, explain who they are and what they do. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was a really exciting conversation. We're touching on uh, our journeys into growing. We're touching upon uh, the growing projects and the different projects that she's a part of. We touch on seed saving, community, um, need for networks, um, and just a little bit about what growers are like. So all of that to come up. Um, but I thought I'd just uh, kind of maybe share with you all some of the things that I've been finding interesting recently. Um, when it, one of which uh, is I've come across this uh, professor at Utah at uh, the state of Utah University um, in the US, um, who's doing what I think is some really interesting um, scientific work at the moment. Um, in that he's uh, leading the first randomized control trial um, looking at health and nutritional benefits um, to the human body of agroecological grown food and vegetables versus uh, supermarket-bought, more kind of mainstream um, grown uh, fruit and veg and other products. Um, and this is a guy called uh, Stephen Van Vliet. Um, and we'll uh, link to some of his work on our Instagram uh, once Mike's back and I, he relinquishes the keys to me. Um, but I think this is really interesting because uh, it's a fully randomized control trial. Um, people are eating seven weeks of the agroecological agri food and having all of their kind of like what they can do whatever they want with it, but they're getting all of their food in that way. And then they'll do seven weeks of uh, the supermarket kind of like normal, if you like, in inverted commas, food that people might eat every day if they're not um, within this world, I guess. Um, and then they're going to be swapping. Um, and there's various other tests and things that they're going to be doing, um, looking into kind of nutritional and health benefits. Um, and this is ongoing at the moment. So I'm going to be following that and seeing what comes of it. Um, so that's been really interesting. And the other thing that I found interesting is... Um, I was reading this week about a French startup company called Umi, um, and uh, they're interesting because they're working with, they're a producer, so they're a food producer, so they produce things like olive oil and pasta and tomato sauce um, based in France, and they produce this both for di direct-to-consumer markets um, and also for uh, selling in shops. Um, and they have a number of resale establishments that they're working with. And what's interesting about it is that they're only working with farmers who are either currently farming regeneratively or are moving towards farming regeneratively. 
um, and they're called Umi, um, and so worth checking out. And again, like link to them, but they're showing that there is a kind of market for this. There is a they do an awful lot of good stuff about actually um, paying people what their produce is worth. Um, then actually like doing some value add, and they're finding that actually due to inflation, um, that over the last kind of six months or so, uh, that their food has become better value for money um, relative to inflation than um, other more commodity crops and producers who are producing olive oil, pasta, and um tomato sauce and comparable products who are using inflation hit commodity crops um, and having to sell um, at a higher kind of market rate. So because of the fact that they've been able to lock in prices which were fair to the producers at the beginning and the producers have realized that they are fair and that's what they should be paying and by paying more in the beginning they're then being able to actually withstand some of the um, market turmoil that's happening around the globe at the moment. So I found that really, really fascinating. And then the third thing um, is, and I'll touch. We touch upon a bit later in the interview about kind of our moves into this world. But um, I've been reading a book by a guy called Ben Short um, called Burn, and uh, I would I recommend anyone um, who anyone to read it at all. Um, it's amazing. Ben uh, talks about his kind of struggles with mental health, something that I've struggled with in the past. He talks about you know working in a kind of high-powered corporate job, um, which he then came to find really difficult um, in London and the kind of like the problems of needing something more. Um, and it's all about his uh, movement into becoming a woodsman and charcoal maker and coppicer um, in and around the Devon and Dorset uh, kind of space. So that was also um, really fascinating um, and quite heartwarming to me to kind of read about uh, someone else's journey into kind of a parallel space um, and see what's going on there. So, yeah, just a little bit there about kind of what I've been kind of reading and thinking about. Um, we haven't really had any rain yet, um, which is obviously playing on all of our minds as growers at the moment. Um, we've had a little bit, but we need more. Um, and But having said that, the field's looking great at the moment. We're starting to harvest our first aubergines. We should be getting tomatoes soon. We're getting our first courgettes out of the field, which is really great. Um, and it's that time of year when you know you're going to be eating chard and courgettes um, and aubergines pretty much for the rest of the summer, um, which is not a bad thing, but there are an awful lot of them. So, yeah, so that's what's been going on with me. Um, and like I say, Mike will be back with me on the next show. Um, we're not sure who our guest is going to be, but we've got a number lined up, um, which is great. And I hope very much that you enjoy this interview with uh, Robin. So I will fade down now and let them let us in the past take it away. Thank you very much for joining us here in the studio or in our sort of makeshift library studio today. Um, how are you? How are you? Good. It's very nice to be with you both. We've kind of finally managed to align our diaries yeah. so that you've actually managed to come in, which is good. Um, we're obviously both, all three of us, very incredibly busy people, so mm. I'm glad that we could align. But, um, yeah, would you like to sort of tell our listeners, those who don't know you, although I can't believe 
many people won't in the area <laughs> at least. But um, yeah, would you like to sort of tell us a little bit about you and your journey into food and farming and who you might be in that realm? Okay, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Very nice to be here with both of you. Um, how does one introduce themselves? Quite interesting. It's funny that you say that you think most people will know me, which I think that kind of indicates a part of my role is really as a kind of like bridge builder and networker, um, particularly around food and farming in the southwest. Mm. But I, it's funny because I'm always incredibly jealous when I uh, meet someone and I don't know them and they're doing something or I hear of a project and I don't know it. I'm like, oh, what's going? on so I've turned my sort of busybody nature to <laughs> to good advantage so what do I do so horticulturally I work as I run a kitchen garden at a project called outside Devon which is just towards Bantham and there I grow food for the on-site cafe and restaurant and that's a no-dig agroecological project and we also run as part of that we have a community project space where we engage with primarily now as a local school so the eight mm. whatever year group it is when you're eight years old so that group mm -hmm. so we had 24 eight-year-olds and our first project was a seed to loaf project so we sowed mm. uh, modern population wheat and then we mm. will see that from seed through harvest through milling baking and eating except for poor Doug who's a celiac so he can't enjoy the bread <laughs> but he, he can enjoy everything else as part of the process so that's my horticultural work and then I work for an environmental charity called the Gaia Foundation. And as part of that, I work as the, in the Seed Sovereignty Programme supporting growers in the southwest of the country. And how we work with Seed Sovereignty is we work with both commercial and community growers, primarily helping them to overcome whatever barriers there may be to prevent them from successfully saving and sharing seed. So that's my kind of tagline for what I do, mm. but we will talk more about that in more detail mm. later. And then kind of overarchingly, I, yeah, I really focus on building bridges and bringing people together. Often people come to me who are really seeking a way into horticulture or into seed or into some kind of entry. And I'm often mm. able to kind of join people up to the right thing. So I really enjoy that aspect of just my kind of, um, yeah, social networky kind of work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is that enough of an introduction? I as think to what so. I yeah, do? that's perfect. Yeah, definitely. No, what I said wasn't necessarily a dig about everyone will know you. I think it's just that that <laughs> as the manager of the um, South Ham's Land Workers WhatsApp group, I think. Oh yeah, and I'm the gatekeeper. To, <laughs> you are. Well, we all have to badger you with an introduction, don't we? Of who we might be. Um. I think that's great. <laughs> uh, for people who don't know, what Mike's referring to is that there's a really amazing community in the South Hams of professional growers, and we've got a small WhatsApp group. But it's it started since after I left Schumacher College, and um, where I studied horticulture. And we we said this WhatsApp group has become a really kind of core way for growers to stay in touch mm. and share knowledge and inspiration and advice and sometimes offer kind of comfort and solace mm. Mm, <laughs> I always mm. feel like I post the most on there but um, <laughs> it's really great and I have one strict rule is that people have to introduce themselves before they can join which just seems polite frankly yeah certainly <laughs> but it's really interesting because I was denied joining the Cornwall Growers group <laughs> because I was on the wrong side of the Tamar and there ah. had to be a small rebellion to allow me in <laughs> oh, <right>. wow, <laughs> but I respected easy. their rules because I have a strict rule. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fair enough. Totally, yeah. <laughs> so, Robin, one of the things that, you know, Mike and I seem to be um, 
trying to get our heads around at the moment is just this season that we're having mm. um, and you just mentioned about the like the Southampton Growers Group there and it being a place for people to ask questions and find solace and things like that but you've got your own kind of growing project the outside Devon projects and everything we were touching on a moment ago about how Chard's doing one thing Tomato's mm. doing another you know what's the season been like so far for you mm, yeah as a grower it's really yeah it's really this season I think has been particularly hard mm. so I've really been growing professionally since 2017 and um, yeah even in that time I think I've seen things really like there is there is no consistency so this mm. idea that you could kind of use uh you know, local knowledge or historical wisdom or folklore as part of a way to kind of read the seasons is gone. It's totally mm. gone. Mm. And we as growers make a crop plan each year. Mm-hmm. And you may as well just <laughs> rip that up because it's just, there is no rule. So when I, I think it was like 2018, we had 27 degrees in February. Mm-hmm. And then this year was the coldest spring in yeah. six years. Yeah. And then we've gone from a cold, wet spring to a hot, dry summer. So the plants don't know what's going on. And then you can't... So I come to work and I've got a plan of what I'm going to do in my mind and I can't actually do that because I have to kind of be repairing or tending to things that are not working. So you're further and further behind in what you need to do because you're having to respond to things that you weren't anticipating. And the Mm. pest and disease burden is really strong this Mm. year. Plants Mm. are stressed they're stressed from both being cold and wet and then they're stressed from being hot and dry. So it's, you know, as growers, and I'm sure people who've moved into growing because of an awareness of the climate crisis, Mm. you know, we're really seeing, you know, we're not waiting for that to happen. It's happening now. And we're really fully seeing the effects of that. And it is, um, yeah, it's really important to prepare properly mm-hmm. and really look at... So what we're doing outside is we're looking at how we're... So we just built up some shade, thank God, and um, <laughs> and like some space. And so we're going to be harvesting the rainwater from that. Mm-hmm. Should we get any rainwater, you know, this summer? Mm-hmm. And it's just so essential that looking at diversifying your crops... I was due to go on a trip to Plants for a Future in Cornwall, which is looking oh, at yes. climate adaptation crops, mainly perennials, trees and shrubs. So really looking at the reality of having to adapt our diet, having to adapt mm. our growing mm. for climate resilience. And yeah, growing, I grow in a kind of, um, you know, I don't grow the sort of staples. I grow the kind of fancy schmancy stuff sure. for yeah. a restaurant. So it's stuff that's tender. Mm-hmm. It's stuff that's generally a bit more sensitive mm. and it's stuff that's going to react quickly. So it, it's also it's also looking at how how viable that model really is you know so it's just really it's really really interesting but yeah this season has been particularly hard and I really so I was harvesting Dave and I were talking I was harvesting on Thursday and it was a really depressing harvest Mm. you know harvesting is hard work it's long Mm. it's time pressured it's physically tiring you have to get the crops in early you know so everything about it is kind of thing but you're also like deeply engaged with the plants and often the plants are really beautiful and Mm. you can like taste them while you're working and it can be really a fantastic experience but when you're constantly dealing with plants that are stressed and damaged mm. and diseased and covered in pests, it's really the kind of like the the stress of it really mounts plant by plant mm. as you're constantly having to kind of address these issues. And then you look at your harvest and it's like, okay, well, we can't harvest that next week because yeah. it's been too stressed this week and yep. you've been doing a kind of particular style of harvest to try and recover the plant. So it's really... Um, 
yeah, and obviously the work I do with seed sovereignty, it makes it so imperative that you're growing plants that are locally adapted and mm, micro-locally mm. adapted. So it's lovely, I was hearing about your trip to northern Scotland. Mm. So northern Scotland, it's not appropriate to grow the same from the same no. seed batch as it is no. for me growing in South Devon. So what is appropriate is that you're saving seed and you're re-sowing that seed in the same area mm, so that the mm. plants are also having access to their learned knowledge they're genetically passing on their their information from year after year so that they're actually mm. really learn that space mm. obviously i've said you know the seasons aren't aren't true to type anymore but your plants are going to locally adapt to that soil to that small yeah. microclimate and it's just like it's just not an option anymore to not save seed it's just mm. it's, it has to be part of your your skill set as a grower yep. it's just yeah and looking at the varieties that are available obviously you know we've lost so much resilience yes, through loss yeah. of diversity in our food um that it's just really important that both that we save varieties that we like and are reliable and tasty and that we engage in whatever way we're capable of some form of plant breeding that we mm. breed back that diversity and resilience into our crops yeah mm. so how does one practically do that so we you know here at schumacher We've got the five acre kind of like Henry, uh, Henry's field here and everything, which is the main kind of agroecological, agroforestry kind of growing area. Um, the students each year on the um, sustainable agroecology uh, residency will have their own seed saving plot. Mm. And that's an area where they'll grow crops, which some of them are land race crops that we've had like seed for a number of years and they're custodians of that for the, that season. Mm. Um, and others, it's like new crops. And that's so that we can have a different area of the field in which mm. We're not having to worry about letting some things bolt, letting some things go to seed when we're harvesting other things. But we've got the luxury of doing that here. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of students who can also take those projects on. So as a grower, you know, who's not maybe got all of that potential like help and a large amount of space, how does one go about thinking about saving their crops and uh, saving their seeds, sorry, especially when some things are biennial. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. So how to fit seed saving into a market garden. Exactly, yeah. Mm. You could see some very good uh, YouTube projects uh, <laughs> pre, pre-made by the Guy Foundation from <laughs> on our Vimeo channel. Excellent. So there are several, So that you, but yeah, genuinely, if your listeners are interested, there are resources available that kind of talk through that if you're a mm. commercial um, grower because Lord knows it's difficult enough just growing yeah. the food yeah. you know so it is it is a definite additional um, thought process mm. it's an additional logistical plan in terms of your planning it's an additional logistics in terms of your support structures mm-hmm. yes. and that is actually a really important aspect mm. of it so the materials you need to buy it's a process when you're planting out so there are more things that need to be considered so it definitely is i don't want to say additional labor but you know a diversification of your planning you know but the best way to start and which is what i've been doing on the land which is a really good so we have a lot of visitors to where i work so it has a kind of public facing Mm -hmm. role so a lot of it is kind of like educational and public facing so the best thing that you can do to begin is do nothing is that you just <laughs> let things go to seed. Mm. So you pick the end of your bed and maybe you choose, maybe you just choose one plant because mm-hmm. that's all you've got space for. Mm. But maybe you choose three or four or five and you just leave them to do their full life cycle so you can observe how big they get, how much room they take up, how much space you may need. And I think 
people who work on the land of grace tend to be visual, tactile mm. people. So sometimes you need to see it to really understand it. Mm. And also you see things that you might not anticipate that will be benefits. So the beauty of it. So the beautiful beauty of like the umbels of the seed heads, mm-hmm. seeing so many bees all over the coriander flowers, mm. like seeing the sort of the change in the shape and the sort of the 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 immensity of the plant. So it's quite exciting and mm. rewarding. And for mm. growers, I know that we find these things rewarding. So it genuinely is a reward for us. Um, so that's the first step is that you can do nothing. You watch them go to seed. And then you could take, if you're a small scale grower and you are facing many of the pressures that people do, you could look at what your most expensive seed is and mm. you could start from there. Mm-hmm. So squash seed is often very expensive. Mm-hmm. Cucumber seed is often very expensive. And actually what considered wet crops, so you harvest them wet because they've got a fruit around them, mm. as opposed to like lettuce, which is like a dry seed crop. They're easy to harvest in UK climates because we're not waiting for the seed to dry naturally mm. on the plant, which has a risk of getting mouldy because of our traditionally wet autumns, which is the time in which you harvest the seed. So you could you could begin on those kind of levels, like taking it in a pragmatic way. Mm. What do I, you know, what can I let go to seed? What is the most financially, re- you know, uh, uh, logical for me to save seed from? Or you could look at things that you can save seed from as well as getting a harvest from. Mm. So tomatoes are an easy one. They're also easy to save seed from. Mm -hmm. So you could begin on entry level crops like tomatoes. So most market growers are going to grow tomatoes because they're high financial value Mm. and they're delicious and they're beautiful. (laughs) Um, And you can save seed from tomatoes very easy because tomatoes are a strong self-seeder. And ideally, the first fruits produced on a crop are the strongest seeds. The fruit, mm. the, the plant doesn't know if it's got another chance. You know, okay. it's going to put everything mm. into those first seeds. So you can corner off the first truss on your tomatoes, never harvest oh, them wow. to eat, let them fully ripen, and then you harvest the rest of the mm. tomatoes. So that's a very easy mm. way to do it. Or you pick another really strong self-seeder, which is a pea seed. So Mm -hmm. peas, the pea plant, the pea flower, very, very hard to kind of cross-pollinate, but obviously it's possible. Um, So you can just sow your your pea seeds, protect them from the mice, and then do nothing. Mm. You just let them grow on. And because you sow them quite early, it's likely that they will dry on the plant and be easy to harvest. And then they're quite fun to kind of process and harvest collectively so you could do that if you ran a csa you could run that with your community or you could do it with your friends and family or while watching the tv or other kind of things so yeah starting small but the reality is saving seed is commitment and it's a necessary yeah. commitment and it's a skill and a commitment we all must make mm. yeah and i think i mean you mentioned a few things there as well as it being a really active political and important choice mm. because of climate change and sort of building resilience into our growing systems by learning to save seed by actively saving seed um you also mentioned a couple of the benefits about how seeing that whole stage of the life cycle and having a plant going to flower can actually help really bring in some beneficial insects into your Mm. growing system i know in a lot of the market gardens i've worked at we always let the brassicas at the end of the season Mm. go to flower and that really brings in some really early nectar really early pollen for some of the first insects um, to really bring them onto the land. And then later having things like leaving some fennel go to seed, bringing in soldier beetles as an active predator for aphid and things like that. 
Um, but additionally as well, I guess, as a form of income, um, not only can it save you money, because if you're saving your own seed from your own tomatoes or higher value seed, as you said, um, the, one of the market gardeners I work at, School Farm CSA, we actually have contracts with a couple of seed companies, Real Seeds and Vital Seeds, um, who are a local seed company. And it's a way of kind of almost diversifying your income as a market mm. garden as well. So not only can it be this amazing active political choice, it can also be potentially a good m- money earner as well. If you're doing it properly and you're doing it enough, you can actually get a, quite a bit of money for your seed seed production, really. Yeah. But it's this thing, I guess it does, as you said, it does take a lot of knowledge and it almost does take an, a completely different level of planning, which is why we're seeing such success, I guess, in local small-scale seed companies like Vital Seeds, like Real Seeds. Um, I'm sure you may know the names of some others across the UK, but these small companies really championing seed sovereignty. Um, But I wanted to bring the conversation, I guess, back a little bit more to you, Robin, possibly. Um, I know you mentioned previously that you studied um, horticulture at Schumacher, um, which is obviously where Dave and I have come, come through as well. But I... I know that you've done a lot of work, obviously, with the Guy Foundation, as you said, and with the Landworkers Alliance. What kind of... Did you approach horticulture and, or food and farming in the practical guise first, or was it very much a political guise initially? How, how did you approach growing in the food and farming system? Yeah, so I massively was drawn towards horticulture politically. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting because <clears throat> it feels like such... Because I feel so happy in my <laughs> life now compared to what the point at which I decided to make the change to mm. to do the work I do, it's really interesting trying to remember or actually, you know, reflecting on mm. the different like steps that came into play to put me where I am. Mm. But it's really interesting. So, <clears throat> yeah. So I really, so my background is in fine art. Mm. fine art and activism and um i was talking with some friends this morning about you know the reality of the skills needed to survive and adapt to the world that we are currently and will very shortly be living Mm. in and i think a kind of um increasing awareness of of like climate collapse you know was was always part of my um yeah my kind of journey towards making a choice towards practical Mm. um, skills I was really interested I started and through that journey I I became aware of thing places like Findhorn and stuff Mm. like this and they're like you need a skill to join (laughs) you need an in and I was like I've got really good like you know contemporary thought and you know critical critical uh, questioning abilities as my background in like fine art I was like not really it's not really enough you know (laughs) good dinner party conversation you know fireside chat um so I knew I needed something and Mm. I was and I was weighing up what it would be um and I was also kind of really so I was I became involved through politics with two figures who really interest a few figures who are really interesting were quite pivotal in helping direct me towards a kind of land-based thing so John Jordan and Isabella I'm really bad at pronouncing her name from from O and they're part of the um um oh my god what's their organization called they're, ba- they're based at the Lazad now in France um the laboratory for insurrectory imagination as mm. they were key within the kind of global um yeah kind of like global resistance around yeah 
the kind of you know corporate control etc and the road protests and the forest protests and their long history of direct action training mm. and we became involved with each other through the resistance to the tripping of the tuition fees in mm-hmm. the UK back in like 2010, 2011, where I was a sabbatical officer at the University of the Arts London. And we were twinned with London School of Economics. And we became one of the kind of like core organising groups for that movement. And we did some really interesting stuff around um, teachings at the British Museum and the National Portrait Gallery and you know we created a lot of kind of the aesthetics of that movement so all, all the really good photos of the police covered in paint bombs and stuff like this <laughs> and all the the book block borrowing from the Italian movement and mm. um, it's still a giant no on Parliament Square so we became really involved and like quite core organisers for different disparate groups and I saw through that <clears throat> a real kind of um, a real difference within the movement of people who were kind of taking political action based on lived experience, be that poverty, racism, misogyny, or people who are taking political action based on books and ideas. And I, I'm someone who's grown up, you know, with real lived experience of poverty and, you know, misogyny and other kind of like difficult issues and my politics are really strongly driven by my lived experience I am obviously interested in ideas and writers but it's really to see a lived a change in our lived reality is what Mm. I'm after you know it's like not a kind of like utopian ideal Uh, and I started to feel a bit kind of disillusioned by some of the networks I was a part of and also just felt quite traumatised from shouting at the cops and having um, you know horse charges into groups of children Mm. and seeing the police punching children sat on the floor and being kept for 14 hours in the freezing cold in November and I just thought this isn't really the way (laughs) actually and I can't put my sort of like tender body in these spaces and I need to be part of a movement that is doing something differently Mm. and I wasn't aware of that movement or anybody in that I was Mm. living in London you know, so it's really interesting. So I was really kind of looking for something for quite a long time. Mm. And I also remember a time when I was on the South Downs when I lived in Brighton. And I remember looking around at the earth and thinking, I don't know anything. I don't know anything at all about this earth. I don't know what things are. <laughs> I don't know what they're called. I don't know what to do. I'm living on this planet utterly ignorant. Mm. And it just felt a ridiculous place to exist in. Mm. And then I started thinking about all the questions I was questioning while I was studying fine art. And I thought, is this really essential right now mm. for, this, for this moment to be thinking in this way, to be spending my precious time in this way? As much as I love, you know, kind of like, I love that world. And so I just kind of started to look at the essentials, like absolute core essentials. And it's like, and the obvious things are, can I feed myself? Mm. And I thought, no, I can't. And I, it felt more important to be able to answer yes to that mm. than to continue with the kind of fine art world that I was in. So many, many of those things coalesce. And what's interesting is that at the time I decided to study at Schumacher College, I was living in Paris. It sounds great when I say what I was doing, but I was <laughs> miserable as hell. So I was living in Paris and I was working for one of the world famous artist Anselm Kiefer. If you don't know who that is, that's embarrassing. You should know who that is. <laughs> so on paper, my life sounded so amazing. Like, I live in Paris and I work for this amazing artist and I was actually paid well, which is unbelievable. But so miserable. And he would, 
pay someone to come and like shelf stack plants into the ground mm. and then they'd just get left and it would just be covered in bindweed and it just drove me mad mm-hmm. drove me absolutely mad and I was like I could do that mm. I can do this and I just on 26th of February I walked across the studio and I said and I just said buy, buy me a polytunnel and I can grow you some food and I had no idea really what I was doing I think I'd read the square foot garden book mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and that was it <laughs> <laughs> and then I spent every day and every night in this bloody polytunnel being like, what's that? <laughs> what is that? I remember looking at an aubergine flower and being like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> but finding Schumacher was really, mm. yeah, like the golden ticket mm. for my life. Yeah. That's quite exciting. So how did you find Schumacher? I think I was listening to Desert Island Discs. Really? Oh, really? I think so. Because <laughs> I love Desert Island Discs. Yeah. And uh, I think I heard Satish on there. Oh, okay. And uh, oh, I don't think his choices are very good. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and Sang Shuji, the worst choices ever. Terrible. <laughs> kind of awful. Um, yeah, and I, I'm sure, I think it was from there. Because I think mm. I was looking, and then I think I started looking at some of the short courses and the master's programs, and they were all insanely expensive um, but very exciting and then I remember looking years later and I, the horticulture programme had appeared mm, yeah. and yes, I'd yes. had a picture of Schumacher College like a black and white printout stuck on my wall oh wow okay. and was just like yeah and then everything about it really fitted residential mm. you know I'm a long practising Buddhist and from Jewish heritage and was brought up in a kind of Wiccan new age heritage and so there's lots of things, but a sacred spiritual connection was essential mm. to mm. anything I was going to do. So, yeah, Schumacher really kind of um, answered everything I was looking for, which was great. Mm. And, and things I didn't even, things I didn't even realise I mm. needed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget the welcome. The welcome was the most unbelievable experience. To be welcomed, to, I've never experienced a welcome like that. And mm. I was constantly sort of waiting like, oh yeah, when's the, when's the veil going to drop? Mm. Like, when's, <laughs> when's the real the real thing gonna appear but it never did you were like oh you're genuinely like celebrating that we're here mm. okay <laughs> yeah it's great mm. yeah it's it's a it's kind of a different space mm. like I heard about Schumacher because I was reading Daniel Christian Val's uh, Designing Regenerative Cultures and I just like I decided that very similarly I decided I was really unhappy in what I was doing in London I'd worked in learning and development for years ostensibly my role was to make people better at their jobs I looked at some of the organisations I was working with I was like why on earth do I want to make your people better at what you're doing <laughs> like honestly and it was this like really kind of like crisis like moment of mm. like what am I doing where am I going and mm. I was reading this book and, it, and he'd studied here on oh, wow, EDT many many years ago and still teaches on ecological design mm, thinking yes, as well yeah. now and it's like what's that place and I decided that I wanted to go off and like learn to grow and mm. like you know needed some kind of connection to countryside again to the land to kind of like where f- and and regenerative agriculture agroecology call it whatever we want like you know seemed to be both a practical and a spiritual thing mm. that I could be doing for both myself people around me and for the planet yes. um, yeah. in a way which wasn't going to be extractive and was actually going to build soils build people's livelihoods build like you know a, a, a nicer way of kind of mm. living mm. and I, I came across this place and then found the residency and was like oh wow okay like mm-hmm. let's yeah. go and kind of like try that so yeah and it's it's you know it's it's a strange place in the, <laughs> like 
you know, but I just kind of, I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is that have any of the the experiences that you had here influenced what you've gone on and done and, the, and other practices? You talk about the welcome that you got here mm. and the veil not slipping. Do you think that the way in which kind of Schumacher operates and the way in like the head, heart and hands kind of like philosophies and things, do you think you've taken that into your own agroecological practice mm. as well? Mm. Yeah, interesting. The thing I really enjoyed was the community mm. aspect of it. And then after leaving Schumacher, I lived at the Manor House, which is a community of like 11 oh, yeah. of us. We had two families there, two little ones. And then following that, I you know, moved into a much smaller kind of liv- living situation. And I really miss... I miss people. Mm. I miss those conversations. I miss the more than just myself. Although I work alone, which sometimes I really love. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the things I really, yeah, I'm reminded of that is really important is this, yeah, is community. Mm. Yeah, having community around you and having those opportunities to just like have so many other kind of um thoughts and ideas and when you're at Schumacher sometimes it's tiring obviously mm. when there's so many new people and they're mm. all so happy and um, <laughs> a little like cut of cynicism comes in handy sometimes <laughs> but um, yeah that is really important and I it's so easy I was talking this morning to a friend and we're saying I think the kind of personality type of market growers is actually like like not necessarily that healthy like we're often quite uptight we're often quite controlling yeah. we're often like <laughs> quite struggle to work you know collaboratively yeah. we're all kind of obsessed with setting up these one acre like micro you know like carbon copies of each other <laughs> we're obsessed with getting it right you know so it's like That's it's quite true. an interesting personality type i don't know whether the work creates that or whether we we are just naturally drawn to it but when i was doing the project with the kids outside and i we, they'd sort of sown the wheat by hand it's all very good and then i said you need to kind of press the seed into the ground mm. so i said you can do this in lots of different ways you could like walk over it you could tread over it and then i was like well you could dance over it and they all just took this and they just <laughs> danced the wheat into the ground and it was so beautiful and I just thought, yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> I need I need others to yes, bring joy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's really something Schumacher taught me. Mm. And and I need reminding of mm. because it's too easy to be too uptight, too controlled, yeah. too focused on your outcomes and lose the joy of what you're doing. Yeah. Mm. I think that's very true. Mm. It does seem funny that Schumacher does seem to sort of collect well, maybe this is the wrong word, but sort of lost people in a way. Like, I, th- I mean, listening to, both journey, of your, yeah. Yeah, d- listening to both your stories about how you came to Schumacher and what sort of brought you here, I mean, very much echo with my own, I think. And it was very much at a time of my life where I was feeling incredibly disillusioned with what I was doing previously. And it, and it still had that tread of sort of climate alarmism because mm. I was a climate scientist before. And it's the first time I've heard that. Well, I, I kind of keep it quite under the wraps. I don't know why. I'm not really good at talking about myself, I think. Um, Dave actually introduced me as Dr. Cooper on this radio show the other week, and I sort of <laughs> admonished him for it slightly. But, um, yeah, I was a glaciologist. I was a climate scientist. Um, and it was... I was a bit fed up with just writing that all of this. <laughs> I was a bit fed up with writing all of these like research papers that were kind of sitting in uh, journals and yeah. being like, "Well, we we know the climate's changing. It's been changing for like the last however long." And like 
I don't know. Like, I wanted to do something that felt a bit more practical mm-hmm. and on the ground. And I think coming to Schumacher not only gave me the kind of the in of the practical side and the doing doing the stuff with my hands and getting my hands actively involved in the soil, but it was the added bits. It was those mm. things that I didn't really know about the the community side of things and the the sort of added. I don't know. Emma, our colleague, always calls it fairy dust, the magical fairy mm. dust of, of Schumacher, where you kind of. It's that bringing that joy, bringing that community and kind of working mm-hmm. together with people. And I think I I do kind of have a, a bit of a sense of missing that in a way, of sharing that joy with people, because I think you're right, you kind of need that. Almost like people to either have joy presented to you then you're bit to remind you of it or like someone to kind of like cheerlead you to like bring it out of yourself and be like, I need to do this because of mm-hmm. this. And I think sometimes you're right, the market gardens that I work at at the moment I'm not they're, they're great places to be I'm not criticising them in any way but there is particularly sometimes it is that kind of thing about being in control and also the fact that food growing doesn't earn you very much money mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. there's an element of like you're kind of up against the wire you're yeah. having to yeah. kind of do things properly in inverted commas and kind of do things the right way in order to make sure that you can actually pay yourself a wage at the end of the day as well and it's a difficult thing particularly as you said right at the beginning this um feeling like you have to prepare for this uh, ever-changing climate, these ever-changing sort of slightly wacky mm-hmm. seasons. But there's only so much you can prepare for an incredibly wet spring when you can't do any preparation mm-hmm. because you can't get out in the field and do the bed prep to then suddenly having a really hot, dry mm-hmm. season where all of your plants are struggling <clears throat> mm-hmm. and you're struggling because you're a bit like, how am I going to get any of this right? I don't know, mm-hmm. it's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult yeah. thing to to kind of play that balance. And I think sometimes being reminded of maybe the sort of the why of coming into it and the reminded mm, of the joy mm, in it mm. I think it's really important mm. tool actually yeah definitely that's why I think working for the Guy Foundation is such an mm. incredible organisation Liz is really good she's like I don't like the word organisation it's more like an <laughs> organism and it's like you know Liz is one of the founders of Gaia is really she's like if you don't if you don't have a kind of nature practice if you don't have Mm. that you can't do your job Mm. you know so it's like how you know sitting at your computer just like drumming the emails is not is not the job you know it is having a connection to to the world around you so it's really wonderful when you are kind of sat there in this kind of very normal you know kind of victorian judeo-christian kind of mentality that you Mm. must work harder yes and you think god i'd really just like to look at the clouds for 10 minutes (laughs) you know that liz would be like get out and look at the clouds and we as part of guy foundation have celebration on the equinox and the solstice Mm. together as a whole um, you know kind of like staff community and some of the staff work in Zambia and South mm. Africa and so it's really lovely to all come together and then each year we go on like a small like retreat together I didn't mm. go last year because I was like too busy too busy <laughs> which is so interesting my colleague was like oh yeah you're you're really silly you should have, <laughs> you should have totally gone we were just swimming in the river it was great oh, and this sense that actually yeah it's really important to nourish the spirit yeah. You know, to nourish the soul mm. and Schumacher head heart and hands it's really easy to forget the heart mm. aspect mm. of it yeah, when you are faced with climate crisis when you are faced with financial distress when you are faced with precarity it's really really hard and it's like yes how do we do that mm. and I think we have to work really hard to do that you know so it's the summer solstice tomorrow and no one's got anything planned there's no, no, I saw your message on the group. There's no growers holding a feast. Mm. There's no, no collective ceremony. We're losing it. 
That's we're losing that. it and we need to work harder to kind of take that time to allow the sacred into what we're doing mm. and that's why i'm really impressed with sarah and samson with mcnaf harez which are looking at jewish connection to land mm, and yes, totally yes. incorporating the sacred and the ritual and the spiritual into what they do with much celebration and focus on rest as well and mm. it's really yeah i think it's too easy and I'm totally also to blame for that to just like mm. to wash away the kind of the edges that are so important yeah, yeah. Mm. I think the word that you used there that really stuck out to me is that the word nourish nourishment mm. and like we, we're all in the field of nourishment yeah, by growing yeah. food yeah. but it is about not just the nourishment of the actual sustenance of feeding ourselves but the n- nourishment of of the soul of the land connection yeah, which I think yeah. we all have yeah, like that's part of why I'm still in this field, mm. why I'm still in growing. It's that land connection. But yeah, I think it's easy to lose it, I think, sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, you mentioned, so as, as we're pre-recording this interview, you mentioned that it's the summer solstice tomorrow. Um, what, what will you do? yeah i've suggested lots of things to people (laughs) has anyone replied no i liked Um, aiden's reply of doing a 16 hour day i did sort of think tomorrow is my buyer day and i will be with um so just practically so i'll be with hetty from nuka community orchard visiting Mm. vital seeds so that would be really great but i sort of yeah but what's so interesting actually like talking about community and my my nature really goes towards solitude it's quite interesting so we could the classic thing is you go to Haytor and you watch mm-hmm. the sunrise yes yeah. but also Scabacoon Beach is a really lovely mm, okay. place to watch the sunrise and then you can have a, a dawn swim which mm. is really great and I don't know about the tides if on high tide normally on high tide you can still sleep on Scabacoon Beach because okay. so, at three in the morning you probably sat in your bed been thinking oh am I really going to sleep <laughs> ideally you would I would sleep there tonight and then would go for a dawn mm. swim Let's see if that happens. Yeah, maybe, potentially. (laughs) I was thinking of maybe doing a little mackerel fish in the morning at dawn as well. Oh, nice. So that'd be quite fun. At Slapton. At Slapton, because you also get the sort of sunrise at Slapton anyway, because you're on the east. So I don't know, we'll see if I can convince someone to give me a lift. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, yeah, might be me. <laughs> but Dave, you're but you're still here at Schumacher, and I know Schumacher always. Yeah, we're going to be uh, we're going to be creating a labyrinth around the labyrinth stone in Henrysfield, mm. and then walking and uh, walking that, and then giving offerings to that. Um, nice. So that'll be certainly the whole growers group, but it'll be opened up to the kind of wider community and things like that as well. So if you are around around right. half past three on the solstice and. When I, I'll let you know whether or not Robin has actually. Uh, <laughs> Did you do it? Yeah. Half yeah. um, in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, then we'll be around and walking a fresh labyrinth. Nice. Um, but I just wanted, as we kind of wrap this up, one theme which seems to have come out of this for me, and, mm. you know, it's interesting when we talk about ourselves kind of like being those kind of like, hard line kind of perfectionists and yeah. kind of being maybe quite difficult to like be around I'm putting myself in this as much <laughs> as you guys have like said that. Definitely, definitely. And like you know semi kind of perfectionists and like mm. working alone and things 
but one observation is that there's always been this kind of like theme of community running through everything you've just spoken about. Mm. We started out with the WhatsApp group. Yes. We've gone through the whole kind of like political activation and political kind of movements. We're now talking about the work that you've done with like Gaia and kind of like the kind of that community and remembering that, be it from a spiritual perspective, a sacred perspective, or just a can I have some help? Like, mm. you know, and like, how do I do this kind of perspective? So, you know, is that, would you agree that kind of that, like, you know, that, kind of community aspect has been something that you've always been looking to foster for mm. people mm. i think it's just so important it's just so practically important mm. the reality of it is so essential um but i don't know if it's something i've been really well i think in most recently is something i'm really actively trying to cultivate mm. yes across all of my networks and in my life very specifically so my buddhist community is like very community focused so so within within my Buddhism, we talk about like the sort of like the three pillars, the idea of like a like a tricycle. So mm. if you take one wheel off, it just goes round in a circle. Mm. So you need that like, the community is part of like the reality of your life, where you kind of where you show up in the world, mm. you know. And that is the kind of real important, the most important act in your life is how you kind of show up in your community. Um, and the reality is with what's coming we have to have each other. Yes, There's quite an yeah. interesting article that someone sent me today about these sort of billionaire um, preppers in the States. Oh, yes, yeah. And this idea <laughs> that technology will save you, that mm. something else will save you, that money would save you, but the only thing that's going to make the future livable is community. Yeah. That's Certainly. the only thing. Mm, yeah. mm. We hardly touched enough of, on that with Richard, didn't we? Yeah. We were speaking about technology as being this is often upheld as this thing that will save us, but I don't I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it will necessarily. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've just ruined your lovely final point there. Well, <laughs> I don't but um yeah. Any other final thoughts, Dave? No, just thank you. Honestly. Yeah. Like yeah, no, this has been amazing. And yeah, we've wanted to. We've obviously been trying to put this together for a while, which we've been yes, doing the pre-recording yeah. things. But um, yeah, thank you so much. That was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, mm. pleasure. My thank pleasure. you very much, thank Robin. You. Thank you.